Our sermon text comes from the book of James this morning, James chapter 5. Uh, Neil will be focusing on verses 13 through 16, but I'm going to start at the first verse of the chapter and read 2 verse 16. If you're reading from our Pew Bibles, you can follow along on page 1174, that's 1174, James 5, starting with verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how, is the, how, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come now before you in the form of your word, your word that leads us and guides us and gives us life your word that feeds us, your word that corrects us, your word that teaches us. And now as we come to listen, we pray that you would speak through our brother, our friend, Neil, 
your words of truth and life. And we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive, that you would implant this word into our hearts and that it would bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mark. I'd also like to extend my greetings to Paul, having Paul back. In the Christian world, you frequently meet people uh, from uh, around the world, and you immediately like them. Uh, and that was the case for, uh, I think, Paul in my world. And uh, it's great to have you back uh, and to see you looking well. And it's also great. I'm also a drummer, as you probably know. And uh, <laughs> thank you. It's also nice to have a drummer uh, back here. So I'd like to offer a disclaimer before we start this morning that everything I'm going to talk about today is not medical advice. Uh, most of you know that I'm a medical doctor and I strongly believe in the biomedical model, but I'm going to be examining biblical statements uh, about health. Uh, and this is by no means considered health advice or a rejection of anything biomedical. We're just going to examine what the scripture says, particularly about the relationship of confession to health and prayer to health. I'm not a theologian, and that will become very evident today, and I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm just like one of you who's been kind of meditating on these verses for a couple of weeks, uh, and they mean a lot to me uh, in, in, this, in this context, and I hope they help us along on our journey together today. So if you're of a certain age, you probably recognize uh, Joey from Friends, and Joey's kind of a numbskull, and what he often does to people in his greeting is, how you doing? Uh, and it's kind of a Bronxy accent. And for a person like me who sees patients often, maybe 30 patients a day, the original conversation is often, how you doing? And if I know the patient fairly well, I might kind of go to Joey a little bit. So I kind of like the Joey idea. But how you doing is really the question I have for each of you as individuals today. How are you doing in this really crazy time? this unprecedented time that we're living through together. When you come to see a medical doctor, we use what's called the biopsychosocial approach to healthcare. And most people present with what's called a biomedical problem. I'm having a pain in my stomach, or my joints are sore, or I can't sleep. It's kind of a biomedical complaint. And the traditional expectation is that your doctor will go to the biomedical cause of that. Uh, you have trouble in your stomach because of too much acid. But the biopsychosocial approach, which is very, very helpful, says examine the biomedical completely, but also look at the social consequences that that patient is in. So what's happening with their job, what's happening with their marriage, what's happening with their stress levels, because that will affect how much pain they complain about. I think that makes sense, that's intuitive. And in our current world, we always look at the psychological background of the patient. So when you see a physician, they're always contemplating your mental health. When I ask a patient how they sleep, just about, I would say 75% say, Doc, I don't sleep so well. Are you up at four in the morning? Are you thinking about things? Yeah, Doc, that's me. Well, we should have a conference call because that's half the city up at four o'clock worrying about things. And then we start talking, well, when you don't sleep well, do you feel poorly? Yeah, Doc. And we move into the sadness and the depression. That's that psychological component of so many people. So the biopsychosocial approach is helpful. Biomedically, life has probably never been harder for North Americans in, in the last couple of decades. We've just gone through a one in a hundred year pandemic. 
where thousands and thousands of people died. We are now seeing an unprecedented excess cause of all-cause mortality. So deaths in general are up 10% in virtually all Western countries. Why that is, nobody knows. But it's clearly a result of the pandemic and some of the responses to the pandemic. There's a growing lack of confidence in our social institutions. Can we trust different organizations? Are they telling us the truth? Our climate seems to be in chaos. Every day there's another headline about evidence of climate change and how that's stirring up our world. Our healthcare system is certainly in trouble, if not broken. There's economic uncertainty. We have the greatest debt ever in the history of mankind in North America. If you're a person of Christian persuasion, your social world sees churches dying and shrinking attendance as a result of COVID and then perhaps uh, as a result of other cultural influences. Psychologically, we're seeing clearly what can be described uh, as deaths of despair. Depression is up substantially since the pandemic. So depression typically has a baseline of about 10%, a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of depression. Uh, and after the second year of the pandemic, it was up to around 30%. The evidence indicates that it's probably going up. The Boston School of Public Health has said that now one in three Americans have significant clinical symptoms of depression. So these are deaths of despair. Adolescent anxiety is considered an epidemic, up from a normal baseline of around 10%, now around 30%. 30% of adolescents report significant symptoms of anxiety. So this is the biopsychosocial world we're currently living in. Deaths of despair are rising rapidly. You may have heard of the opioid epidemic. And deaths due to opioids are skyrocketing in the United States. There were over 100,000 people died from opioid po poisoning. You've heard of this drug called fentanyl. This is mirrored in Winnipeg. We're seeing more deaths here than ever before. We've also seen more deaths as a consequence of something called psychostimulants. The most common one you'll be familiar with is crystal meth. A scourge on the streets of Winnipeg crowding our homeless shelters and literally ruining people's lives. So these are deaths of despair, and you might say, well, Neil, why on earth are we talking about this in church? I don't, I don't care about your biopsychosocial approach to healthcare. Save that for your medical students. But I think it's very important to reflect on the, on the fact that the Bible teaches that one of the main reasons we as people suffer is from unconfessed sin in our life. And we're going to go through clear teaching to that accord today. This suffering includes our health. And we'll look at scripture that says, even to the point of death, unconfessed sin in our lives harming our health, even to the point of death. The act of confession, particularly in the context of corporate prayer, our passage from James 5, in prayer with elders, can lead to healing and forgiveness including a restoration of your relationship with God and presumably a restoration of your health. We are to confess to God and to other people that we can trust, particularly through the window of prayer. I found some funny things on the internet regarding confession that I thought I might share with you. Um, the Catholic tradition of confession here, <laughs> kind of like the little kid saying to the padre, you go first. I really quite like this one. I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. The good one? Yeah, you like that one. 
And then, uh, given that I'm, I'm not a pastor, I also kind of like this one. <laughs> Do you know what hell is? Come here, our preacher. <laughs> well, if you can't have some fun at church, what can you have, eh? So the central truth for our message today is that confession and prayer are critical steps in our healing, forgiveness, and restoring our relationships with God. So let's examine some of the most important scriptures in relationship to this. This scripture is very, very uh, well taught and understood by most Christians. The idea of confession and righteousness. This is from 1 John 1.9. And you could probably repeat this with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. As I studied for today's talk, I was so impressed at what the Greek language brings to so many of these passages. And I know my friend Pastor Yuri and Pastor Mark have said maybe just one Greek word per sermon. But I've got a few for us today. I find they really, really expand what these passages mean. And it takes it, in my sense, to a much deeper, more profound level. The word for unrighteousness is a word that means a lack of justice. And so justice and righteousness are tied together, a lack of justice. We live without justice when we live in an unrighteous way. This passage tells us that if we confess, we're cleansed. And clearly the corollary is that if we don't, we're not. So what dirt are we still living in if we haven't confessed our sins? That would be a, a, an analogy we could, we could look at. Also, the translation of this word, word, in the last sentence here, is the logos. So the logos, that unifying principle, the Jesus principle, the Jesus, the logos was present with God in the beginning. So this idea, if we, if we don't confess sin, if we deny our sin, we don't have the Jesus in us, the logos. So the word seems kind of small, but when you think the logos, the Jesus, wow. So confession is, is this profound spiritual place that we need to go as Christians. I think we can all acknowledge that. I love this tattoo, forgiven, forgiven on somebody's arm. This confession of 1 John 1.9 is a confession to God. This confession links our righteousness, or a lack of confession, with persisting in unrighteousness, essentially standing on the right side of God. It brings the idea of unconfessed sin and consequences together. The posture of the Christian, this forgiven posture, uh, again, brings justice and mercy together. I am a sinner saved by grace is the posture of the Christian. I am a sinner saved by grace. And we sometimes forget that. This is from the Grand Canyon University website, and I, I found it particularly helpful. So what is confession? So confession refers to the acknowledgement of one's sin to God, whether the sins be acts or dispositions of the heart, and whether they be sins of commission or omission. Confession arises from a right sense, I like that, a right sense of oneself before God. Confession arises from a recognition of one's sin and its dishonor and rebellion to God. Confession does not seek 
to excuse or justify sin. And it does not seek to shift the blame towards others. But in humility, confession acknowledges sin. Moreover, confession arises from a recognition of God as both just and merciful. One of my favorite songs we sing here is Justice and Mercy Meet on the Cross. God is just in his judgment against our sin and merciful in his free forgiveness offered in Christ. Confession thus is an expression of a person's faith in God's mercy to forgive and cleanse because of Christ's redemptive work. Confession is linked with repentance inasmuch as it agrees with God's stance against our sin and expresses one's commitment to turn away from that sin in faith towards God. So justice and mercy meet at the cross. Let's look at another passage that uh, reflects this idea of confession and physical health and well-being from Psalm 32. And I think this highlights that not confessing is linked to physical illness, pain, and a sense of spiritual oppression. Read with me from, from Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Sorry. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the, the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So this Hebrew word confession here from this Old Testament passage is this idea of kind of throwing out or open hands. So I love this picture of this person with open hands as they confess to God. It's kind of like, I have nothing to hide. That beautiful image. So I, I say to God, I have nothing to hide from you. And this passage says that if I do not acknowledge who I really am, this can be linked to physical pain and suffering. Listen to these word pictures again. Bones wasting. Heavy groaning. Lack of strength. The Lord's hand heavy on us. How does that feel? You probably know. I know. That's not a good feeling. The Lord's hand heavy on us. This is what the silence, the lack of confession gets us. By contrast, the confession leads to deliverance and protection. What beautiful words from the psalmist. This idea is also that of our key passage, James 5, that we'll look at in a minute. Let's look at another passage that highlights this idea of confession related to our physical and spiritual health. This is from 1 Corinthians 11.30. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup, clearly the communion ceremony. 
For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak, and that word weak is asthenic, and sick, and the word for sickness means chronic illness. And a number of you have fallen asleep, and that's not what you're doing here in the sermon today. That's dead. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we would not be finally condemned with the world. So this teaches us that there's this thing called the discernment of the body of Christ. And from the limited reading I've done on this, it, it's this wrestling with the true bodily sacrifice of Jesus and what that means to me. And what it means to me is I need to acknowledge that he actually died for me. And he died a painful physical death for me. And that as a consequence, my life needs to be different. And that if I'm not living a different life, I'm probably not discerning the body of Christ well enough. If I don't discern that body, which is essentially acknowledging who I really am before God, then this passage says, I can be weak, I can have chronic illness, and I can die. And that's pretty profound stuff. Again, this is not biomedical advice. Please don't take it as such. But this is what the scripture is teaching us here. So the communion ordinance is intimate and it needs to be sober-minded where we acknowledge who we are before God. A lack of discernment regarding the sacrificial death of Jesus is linked to spiritual weakness. And the spiritual weakness somehow can lead to illness and then the spiritual weakness can lead to death. And if you look at the scourge of substance use disorders in our world, it doesn't take long to see that, does it? So if I'm, if I'm hooked on crystal meth, it doesn't take long for me to be using this, not living the way I should, to becoming chronically ill and addicted, to actually dying. It happens every day on the streets of Winnipeg. And some of those people who are dying are Christian people who just haven't been able to get this back on track, right? I'm definitely not suggesting that there is a straight line of causation here, but I think we need to acknowledge what happens in our spiritual lives can clearly affect our health. I don't think any of you Christian people here would say that's impossible. I think you know it can happen. And I think that, again, the substance use disorder message to us is so clear in how that can go. So this adds kind of a fourth dimension to our biopsychosocial approach. We still have biomedical problems. Yes, uh, we pray for our dear sister Betty Ehlers who has cancer. Terrible news today. And there's clearly sociological problems in our world. And there's clearly a mental health epidemic. But there's a fourth tier to how we feel and it's our spiritual station. And that can get healed here today. I would never be so bold as to say your cancer is going to be healed here today. But your spiritual station can be healed right now. And I think that that's really, really important. It's also important to emphasize that God's forgiveness is not contingent on our confession. 
Our forgiveness is once and for all and forever. Our eternal station has been declared. You are justified as soon as you believe Jesus is your, is your Lord. But our bodies, our mortal souls, still wrestle with the consequences of the stuff around us. We are dealing with that. Jesus says you are forgiven. That's the tattoo, right? That's the big tattoo on the forearm. You are forgiven. Uh, one of our old churchmates had that tattoo here, a lovely guy. They've, they've moved, but it always moved me when I saw that. Uh, stamped, forgiven, don't forget it. Really quite meaningful. So we need to agree with God and stop trying to walk our own way. Our passage from today really does kind of solidify this teaching of the link between confession and prayer and healing that we find in James 5. I'm going to read it again, mostly from verses 13 to 16. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's kind of an odd passage in that it links this healing and confession and confessing to other people and sickness. And I think when we look at this passage in a deep fashion, we'll get a sense that the meaning is much more profound than, oh, I don't feel well today. I'll call the elders and they'll pray for me. I don't think that's what this is about. It's important to understand that this process of healing described in James 5 is not me praying to get well. That's not what it is. This healing scenario requires the person translated as sick, and the word sick is asthenic, and it's a medical word we use all the time. So there's something called myasthenia gravis, that's weakness of your muscles. There's neuromyasthenia, a person who's weak because of something like MS. So we use the term asthenia a lot, and it means weakness. So the, is it the sick person or is it the weak person? The reason I read you 1 Corinthians 11.30 is that the word was translated weak in that passage. Here it's translated sick. I think you get the picture. This is probably a weak person, and I think we're getting to the message that it's spiritual weakness. It's not I have a cold today. The healing scenario requires that person to let the elders know that I've got trouble. And that's confession. And it's not much to confess that you're feeling unwell. Most of us do it all the time. When I do it at home, my wife says, Neil, you're not sick. You're not sick. You're not sick. Because I'm always thinking I'm sick. Anybody else a hypochondriac in the room? Beautiful. Beautiful. Good. We'll have a little meeting afterwards, those guys. It always seems to be guys are the hypochondriacs. I'm not sure why that is. <laughs> so letting the elders know of this situation is probably more of a, hey, I've really messed up and I've got myself in a bad spiritual situation, then I'm sick. It's probably a spiritual crisis. 
as opposed to just, I'm sick. And we'll look at some of the language that helps get us to there, I think, as, as a reasonable conclusion. And so this beautiful idea that Jesus heals us, I think, is made more poignant as we look at the language. So again, that word asthenic, translated sickness in the NIV, is weak. There's another word uh, that's translated tired. Uh, it comes from weary, but it's to the, to the point of collapse. This person's ready to collapse, and it's often from overwork. And you can see that amongst our pastors sometimes. There's a lot of work for people to be done out there. The term sin, again, if you've sinned, that's this word, uh, missing the mark, is, is the best translation of this. Uh, it's a Greek term introduced actually by, by Aristotle. The word confess, here, the, the word is homo logeo. Again, logos, the word. And homo, the same. So I have the same word. I have the same opinion as God. I agree with God that I am offside. That's really what confession means. And then these words that are translated healed and to rise up are very, very powerful words. And just allow me to go through them, and I'll stop with the Greek. So the word that's translated make the sick person well is this word sose, and it's properly to deliver out of danger into safety. Again, usually God rescuing believers from the penalty and power of sin. It's a powerful word. It's not cough syrup. The provision of safety of God himself. So, wow, that seems like powerful language when it says, when I'm going to heal you or save you. This word to rise up, again, literally comes from rising from either from sleep or from death, from non-existent, from ruin. Again, it's a powerful, saving word. And the last one that's translated to heal draws attention to the Lord as a supernatural healer beyond physical healing. Physical healing, the Greek word that's used is therapeo. You've heard of therapy. We have an occupational therapeo in the room. Uh, that therapy is what's used in Matthew 12.10 when Jesus heals somebody's hand. So healing is therapeo. Healing a disease is therapeo. This word, iomai, is a much bigger word. It's a spiritual word. So this idea of, I'm going to call the elders and get my cold dealt with, not happening here. Now that's a great prayer, and we can do that prayer, and we pray that here when we have communion services. And it's, it's right for us to do that. But the meaning of this passage is much, much deeper than that. So the predicament is more than sickness, and the deliverance is much more than physical healing. So these three words, rescue from sin, raised from ruin, and supernaturally healed. Also, it's important to note that in Matthew 14 and 15, it's not the oil. People sell this oil on the internet. Uh, it's not the oil. Uh, so it's the, it's the prayer. And listen to it. It's very clear. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. As I looked into what the oil meant, it's quite, it's quite varied, different people's interpretation of the, what, what oil is all about. So again, the healing is a fairly profound event. 
So we start with confession to the elders of the church. I've really messed up. I've got myself in quite a situation. We could call this a spiritual crisis. We need to help. I need to help with this. This is what we're talking about when we go through this process. It's really important. Then we go through prayer with the elders, and then again, we confess to another person. That's the ongoing relationship of confessing to another person. Richard Foster, who's a pastor and a theologian, has a beautiful piece I'm going to read to you. This describes the spiritual discipline of confession. Confession is the spiritual discipline that allows us to enter into the grace and mercy of God in such a way that we experience forgiveness and healing for the sins and sorrows of the past. Both forgiveness and healing are involved in confession. Forgiveness positions us in a right relationship toward God, objective righteousness, to use a theological term. Healing frees us from the domination of our present by our past. Isn't that beautiful? Being freed from the domination of your present by your past, what they call subjective righteousness, to use another term from theology. It is the cross of Jesus that makes this both the forgiveness and the healing a reality. Without the cross, the discipline of confession would be only psychologically therapeutic. I kind of feel like this guy. I've been taking this medication for 50 years. I'm going to sue. The side effects have made me wrinkled, fat, and bald. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be a class action lawsuit against this medication. I think it must be milk. So let's examine this confession and prayer prescription. So while the presence of unconfessed sin is linked to physical suffering, confessing sin to God and others is far deeper than making us well. Um, and so why does this involve confessing to somebody else and not just God? And it may even be beyond the elders too. Like it seems that there's an ongoing confess your sins, how? One to another. I'm not going to tell anybody about what's going on in my life. I mean, that's often our, our, our attitude. Listen to Foster. Confession is both private and communal. It is a wonderful truth that the individual can break through into a new life through the cross without the aid of any human mediator. But if we have not experienced release from the sins and sorrows of the past by means of private confession, and we often don't, we have not exhausted our resources nor God's grace. In the Book of Common Prayer, we read these encouraging words. If there be any of you who, by this mean, cannot quiet his own conscience herein, but require further comfort or counsel, let him come to me or to some other minister of God's word and open his grief. I just think that that's beautiful. So why confession to others and not to God. These are not theological answers I'm going to give to you, but they're just pretty practical, and I think they're pretty self-evident. So alerting others to your need for help. So much of we, what we have difficulty with as Christians is silent. It's my thought life. Jesus busted that right open, right? If you have looked at a woman, you have committed adultery with, with her in, in your heart. Wow, so thought life is critical. It's critical. So an illustration of the fact that we need to confess is I had this lovely patient. I looked after the patient for about 10 years. All kinds of crazy neurological symptoms all over the map. And so we're looking for brain tumors. We're looking for ALS. We're looking for MS. 
Everything's negative. All the buzz work negative. Exams, <sighs> finally the problem comes out on the table. The person's an alcoholic. And then it all became clear. It took me a long time to get there. It took us a long time to get there. So how many drinks do you have a week? Oh, a couple. Not a great question. And we, we don't use that question anymore. Now the person's clean and sober and well, but it was a long journey. There were many of these you know, come to God movements because of backsliding and relapses and recidivism. This is what happens to most of us. In the church, we often don't want people to know that we have a problem. But we all have a problem. And it's good to share that with an ally. Not everyone, but sharing it with an ally. I think that that's really helpful. When you confess your sin to God, you're cleansed from all unrighteousness. When you confess it with the elders, you can get prayer for healing. And now as you confess it to an ally, a person of faith you trust and respect, you can have an ongoing support for your journey. So I'm a gambler, and I've really caused my, my business partners a, a lot of trouble with my gambling difficulties. This is a false story, by the way. And I, I, you know, I'm thinking of betting on this next game. I really want to bet on the Super Bowl, and I'm quite confident my team is going to win. I call my ally, hey man, I can make so much money on this. And he talks me off the ledge, and we walk together, and he knows who I am, and he loves me in my vulnerability, and he gets it. Helps prevent a potential catastrophe. One of the best ways I find this example of, is the 12 steps. We've talked about substance use disorders being one of the easiest ways to see how sin kind of gets us snagged and can take us into terrible places. So I'm just going to read through the 12 steps. Um, I hate to tell you that I've been dealing with this for so many years in my, in my clinical practice. I didn't know the, the actual 12 steps until this week. And when you read them, it's like, this is like a church service. Let's go through the 12 steps together. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, or whatever it is, gambling, pornography, opioids, and our lives have become unmanageable. That's a confession. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and as a Christian, that's Jesus Christ. I've made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of Jesus Christ. We've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Brothers and sisters, each of us needs to do this. And this is what's lacking in our world so much. I blame someone else. It's your problem. You're the idiot. I love that term, a, a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That relates to discerning the body of Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians 11.30. I've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's our confession from James 15, another human and God. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. We humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. It's confession. We make a list of all the persons we have harmed, and we became willing to make amends to them all. That's confession, confession, confession. Sorry, I got the word from my wife. That was very good. We've continued to take personal inventory. 
and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Could you imagine spending your life with a person like this? Who constantly was looking inward? Yeah, I messed up again. I'm sorry. I've sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. In my case, Jesus Christ. Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other substance use people, in fact, to all suffering people, and practice these principles in all our affairs. So a simple question, have you ever told your deepest, darkest secrets, the things that stay in your life, to another person? I'm quite confident that you're here today that you've confessed them to Jesus, I'm not sure whether you've confessed them to an elder and sought healing, and I'm not sure whether you've just had an ally, a spiritual ally. It's kind of threefold confession that this talks about, the, to unleash this power in our lives. I think you need to have a personal ally. So I started to be part of an accountability group about 25 years ago. And the person who ran the accountability group had bumped into Paul Hen Henderson. Again, if you're of an age, you know who Paul Henderson is. So he played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He scored the big famous goal in the 1972 seminal Russia-Canada hockey series. He became famous. And as part of his journey through life, fame didn't satisfy him, and he became a Christian. And he goes around speaking to Christian groups. And he came to about the second of our accountability groups to talk with us. I got to shake Paul Henderson's hand. It was very cool. Early in the process of the accountability group, we were all basically just trying to say what good guys we were. I'm a good guy. You're a good guy. We're all good guys. This is great. Let's pray. Go home. And so Paul Henderson said to us, guys, I've observed this for about an hour. And unless one of you takes off your mask and really says who you really are, what's really going on in your life, you are getting nowhere. And he's a pretty tough guy. <laughs> Played like 15 years in the NHL, and it was like, yes, Mr. Henderson, sir. <laughs> I'd been exactly that person, that I'd become a Christian, but still had so much unconfessed sin in my life that it was just jumbling everything up. So I took the opportunity to have lunch with a friend of mine. His name is Ralph Mueller, a fabulous guy, man of God, and just talked to Ralph about my life and was honest for the first time ever. And I was worried Ralph was going to, you know, come down pretty hard on me. And Ralph said, Neil, can, can we go to the car? Oh, no, it's to the car we got to go? And we went to his car and he said, hey, I just want to pray with you. And he prayed the most beautiful prayer with me I'd ever had prayed. And this helped me understand that Jesus loves me, despite all that stuff. And in fact, because of all that stuff, he went to the cross. And for the first time ever, I felt this freedom, this healing, this rising up, this sose, this egero, this iomai that the scripture talks about. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for going to the cross for us the most amazing thing really in all of human history 
And thank you, thank you for giving us a chance at a life uncluttered by sin. You've forgiven us. Once we name your name, we will be with you for eternity. But we can still leave, live such difficulty in our lives. Help us to confess to you. Help us to confess to an elder. And help us to confess to an ally that we may be healed. We pray these, names, these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, as, a, as a benediction today, I'd like to read as a summary from today's passage kind of what my translation of this would be today. Is any one of you feeling so spiritually messed up that you feel sick? If you do, call on the elders of the church and let them know what is really going on in your life. Ask him to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will rescue those who are ready to collapse and deliver them to the safely, safety of the Lord's forgiveness. The Lord will supernaturally heal you from the consequences of your sin and raise you up, even from the point of death. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may go beyond mere physical healing. Sorry, so you may experience the supernatural healing of our Lord far beyond mere physical healing. In so doing, you will also have a human ally to help you navigate this complicated world we live in. Go in peace.